Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and today we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through 1 Peter. And today uh, we're just going to continue going verse-by-verse through 1 Peter. Some of the things that you know are going to come up today are the concept of being born again, um, the resurrection of Jesus and what it means, and uh, hope in the midst of grief, um, which I think is actually a more complicated idea than people sometimes give it credit for. But if we get it, you'll, we should be wonderfully comforted. So if you would open to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 1 just to kind of remind us of what we've already covered. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Um, I, you know, I didn't mention this before. The Trinity is mentioned here, each, each member of the Trinity, but each of them specifically is mentioned in relation to our salvation. So we see each of, their, each of them active in salvation. And this is one of the cool things about the doctrine of the Trinity as you go through the scriptures. You see... Each member of the Trinity is active in creation, active in salvation, active in these various different aspects. Um, So they each take part, but they each take part differently. And it's just the uniqueness of God. I mean, there's there's no one like him. Uh, So verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So blessed be God who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. That phrase, begotten us again, let me put it more in modern vernacular. Born again. Do you see that? This is that phrase, born again, that we like to use. It's very consistently used in the scripture, um, but it's one of those things that can be kind of confusing to people. In fact, Nicodemus, the, the first guy Jesus announced it to and said, you must be born again in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was confused by this. He's like, how am I supposed to enter again into my mother's womb, Jesus? That doesn't make sense. And it turns out he thought it was a physical birth, but it was a spiritual thing. But if he's confused about it and he's a religious leader, then it's possible that other people might be confused too about the issue of being born again. So what I want to do is just pause for a second on this concept of being begotten again and look at what it means in the scripture. Another term we use for this, born again, in the more theological circles, they like to say regeneration. Regeneration. That's the, the in the theological books, you know, that you'll see the term used. Uh, but it's the same thing, born again or regenerated. You've begun all over again, this is the idea. And it's easy to, to explain something sometimes when we can explain first what it's not. In fact, oftentimes when we describe the Trinity, we, dis- we explain what the Trinity is not. Or we describe, for instance here, what born again is not. So let me tell you what it's not. Being born again is not, according to the Bible, it is not a change of attitude. That is not being born again. A change of attitude, just a change of the mind or heart or sinners trying not to sin, that's actually really, that's repentance. That's not being born again. I change my attitude about my sin. Lord, I confess, I speak the same. You're right. This is sin, and I want to turn from it. That's my attitude change, but that's not what being born again is. It's also not changing your ways, an external change, where I'm doing things differently now. 
people can reform in all sorts of different ways in their lives. Like maybe they were a drug addict before you were saved. Then you stopped being a drug addict. Then you still weren't saved because this is not itself being born again. So external changes, not necessarily. Internal attitude changes, not necessarily. Being born again is also not a religious um, getting religion. That's what it's not. It's not getting religious. I cannot tell you how many people I have, I have come up to them and asked them. I said, hey, what do you believe? And they say something like, I'm a Christian. And I go, oh, great. So, so you know, are you, are you born again? And the response is, I go to church. And I go, hmm, there's some confusion going on here. Are you, have you had a new birth? I go to church. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure Satan goes to church. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I might even know which church he goes to. to be honest. No, I'm just kidding. But this activity of going to church is a very important thing. But it's kind of like secondary. You know, it's a result of being born again as you gather in a local group of believers to get fed and nourished and grow in Christ. But that doesn't get you saved. You know, it's the old saying is, you know, you can you know, go and sit in a garage all day long, but it doesn't make you a car. You know, you can sit in church. It doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. That's not what being born again is. Otherwise, Jesus never would have told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Because this guy had all these things. He tried to have an attitude about sin. He tried to have righteous acts in his life. And he was extremely religious. But Jesus looks at this guy and says, you have to be born again. There's something you're missing. It turns out that being born again is something that man cannot do, but God does to man. So God has to do this to you. This is like a supernatural work of God in your life. It is not just, baptism is not the same as being born again. Water baptism is a beautiful and wonderful thing that God has given us, but it is not, it is not that. What is it? Well, I'm going to give you several scriptures. So if you like, you can get your fingers ready. Hopefully you're ready for some paper cuts. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. That's the first passage I like to take you to. What is being born again? It is a second birth. It is what it sounds like. You're born again. 1 John 5 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So it is, we see in 1 John 5 1 that it's a birth that is not born of man what I had initially, but born of God. A new birth with a new identity in Christ, and it naturally works love into my life because that's part of the DNA, you know, that I've been given, this new DNA of God, so to speak. Not literal DNA here, but, you know, the identity. Um, in J- turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says here, and I'll pause for a moment for you slow pokes. Who can't just flip your Bible right to the patent? I'm just kidding. All right, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is something only God can do. And it is a new birth. It is, con- it is contrasted with our original birth, born in the flesh, with a fallen, sinful nature. Now I'm born in God with his new nature that causes me to love and, and, and brings these, th- these things in my life. In John 3, 8, Jesus, in his discussion with Nicodemus, he says that Nicodemus has to be born of the Spirit. So he qualifies the born again, born of the Spirit. He's like, you've been born of flesh, you need to be born of the Spirit. Now let me be clear here, this does not, this does not mean he's speaking spiritually as in symbolic. 
He's speaking spiritually as in things relating to the spirit. Do you see the difference? Sometimes people spiritualize scripture, but what they really mean is they're just allegorizing everything. They're not actually making it more spiritual. (laughs) They're just allegorizing stuff. So speaking spiritually means I'm speaking about spiritual things. It's a category, right? And Jesus says you have to be born of the spirit. In John 3, 6, he says that which is born of flesh is flesh. Well, that's me and my sinful nature before I come to Christ. I'm just flesh. But that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so, excuse me, born of the Spirit. So born of the Holy Spirit. And then now I have a spiritual life. So there's a whole new dimension to the life of a person who has been born again. There is a spiritual dimension. Genuine spiritual, not religion. Spirituality, actual spirituality. They have a new nature. Uh, According to 2 Corinthians 5.16, we are children of... Of God instead of children of wrath, and and that's in Ephesians, it talks about that. But here in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. That is not how we think of you. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we we know him thus no longer. Um, Because we're a new creation. All things have, old things have passed away, all things have become new. So we no longer look at people based upon their carnal designations, but upon who they are in Christ. A great example of this is like Paul who went from being Saul to Paul, so to speak. You know, the the persecutor of the church, they were feared, and they realized, oh, he's really been born again. So the church, who understood born again, they were okay with the idea that this guy had radically transformed his life and that now he would not persecute them and not kill them and all that. They just wanted to check and make sure he really got born again. You know, and that's what you want to do. You want to see people who are like, hey, man, I I came down to receive Christ. And you're like, yeah, but did you really get saved? It should be evident. If you've been born again, there's a new dimension in your life. There's the spiritual, it causes changes. So it's not a new physical nature. Uh, that comes next. 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, these talk about how we, we groan, waiting for the, uh, the um, I'll read Romans 8, 23 to you. Not only that, we, all, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that being born again, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So my body will go through a transformation Right now I have a living spirit with this, a, a carnal body still existing. And there's, that's the battle I deal with daily. Romans 6, 7, 8, 9. You know, this is 6, 7, and 8. This is the passage that talks about my, my daily battle with the flesh. You're probably familiar with this or you're deceived. <laughs> it's a constant battle. Thankfully, this body will be redeemed too. And I will be given a new body fit for eternity that matches the new spirit, uh, the new life in my spirit that I've been given. So wonderful. So it's not that. that. That physical stuff comes later, but it's the spiritual beginnings of that. According to the scripture, because we are born again, we are now adopted. We're born into a new family. We are now adopted as children of God. Galatians 4, 6, and it says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now think about this. The Holy Spirit is now in you, And the spirit from within you is crying out, Abba, Father. In other words, speaking of a deep personal relationship that you now have with God. This is something that you should experience if you really have gotten saved, is the sense of like, man, God's my father. I remember before I was saved, looking and thinking of God as like this distant, far away, you know, no relationship with him. 
judgment day may come. I, I believed he existed, you know, but there wasn't an actual relationship. But, but upon receiving Christ, there's a new relationship that's there. That's why Romans 8, 16, turn, turn there. This is a verse worth reading and underlining and highlighting and photocopying, passing around texting to your friends. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God, that we're children of God. The Spirit actually bears witness with me that I am a child of God. Now, I, I think that this is a legitimate experience of the Christian, is that there's a, how do you know you know God? And, and partially you just go, I know God. I know God. Like, I've experienced relationship with God. Oh, you mean you felt stuff? Well, Yeah. I just know God. I, I don't know how else to tell you. The Spirit bears witness with my spirit. Now, does that prove it to you? Not necessarily, but it certainly helps prove it to me because I'm experiencing that. Though I would say it's possible for us to quench the Spirit and to harm this relationship we have with God. You know, where we're still saved, but we're just in a hurt relationship with the Lord to distance ourselves, our sins separating us from God in this relational aspect. But there is a genuineness to this. Being born again is related to a new nature, a new, a new spiritual relationship with God by which we go, I am near God. His spirit is telling me that I'm near him, that I have a relationship with him. Um, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'd like to read the contrast. For, for the person who's born again, they will then experience some particular struggles but they'll also experience particular strength in those struggles against sin. So Ephesians 4 talks about this. And it does it in the language of telling us what to put off and to put on. And it keeps telling us to put off things that are of the flesh, that first birth, and to put on things that are of our new birth, the spirit. Verse 17 of Ephesians 4 It says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. That lack of relationship because of the lack of having been born again. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him, And have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. There's a whole Bible study in those two words, deceitful lusts, that our sinful nature actually grows more corrupt over time. It doesn't stay the same. It grows more corrupt. The more I sin, the worse I become. And and the lusts are deceitful. They don't actually give me what they promise. You know, a person lies because they want to save face. But what does the liar lose? All credibility. (laughs) The person does drugs because they want to feel good. But what is the end result of long-term drug use? Feeling horrible and trying to use drugs just to feel normal. Not to mention wrecking your life. I mean, you know, you name you name it. Whatever the the sin is, it robs you of the very thing you're reaching out for. It's deceitful lusts, deceitful desires. Someone who who runs into relationships and sleeps around all this because they desperately want closeness with other people, they ruin every relationship they're in. And they end up alone. And it's just deceitful lusts. They really wreck you. Um, so we're to put off that old, that old man. And verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you, and that you put on the new man, 
which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That new man was created upon being born again. New life, new person, and now, I put, now I'm in a battle betwixt the two, so to speak, and I choose which one to feed, you know, the spirit or the flesh. That's why then I'm told later, walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. This is a daily battle between the spirit and the flesh that the Christian experiences. And um, anyway, you can read on in Ephesians uh, if you'd like to get more information on that. But you get the idea. This is what being born again is. It is a new life in Christ. It is not merely religion, change of attitude, or attempting to change my actions. It is something God does to me. He whammies my spirit and I become alive in a new way. Then there's, we could go on how there's spiritual gifts now that you can employ and you can operate in, um, whatever they happen to be that God has enabled you in. You can minister to others. Um, your prayers are different. Everything's different. Everything's changed. It's not, see, it's not just conversion from one religion to another religion that we're looking at here. Jesus is like, no, yeah, you, yeah, you need to convert to truth, but you need to be born again. And so he has begotten us again, the scripture says in 1 Peter who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. I think if I were to plant a church somewhere, I might name it Living Hope. Because I love, love, love this verse. <laughs> and the concept of our living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It is not a dead hope. Dead hope would be hope that ends up not doing anything in the long run. It, it, it doesn't accomplish anything. When your car dies, you know, you're not going to get where you think you're going. Your hope is dead on the trip. And it's so a dead hope is not wishful thinking. Wishful thinking or hoping really hard or trying to get these good vibes out of me to the point where I can sort of create reality with my faith or something. Rather, the living hope we have in Christ is contrasted with the fact that the world around us and even our own bodies are in a state of dying yet my hope is alive. This is powerful. Christian hope is a very, very powerful thing, and it is a confidence about a glorious, eternal future that we will experience. That is our living hope. That's it. Let me read to you, if, <clears throat> if you'd like to turn there, Hebrews 11. We'll read a few verses here. Hebrews 11, verse 13, starting there. And... Um, this is, of course, the hall of faith passage in the scripture, right? All these great men and women who just trust to God. And what you notice in common with all of them is they made sacrifices, they suffered, and they did it trusting God for the future that would one day be theirs. So it's a great example of their living hope. Hebrews 11 verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Can you see why I bring this scripture up when we're in First Peter? Because it is the pilgrim's handbook, you know, this, this book. So we are, we are pilgrims too. Um, these died in faith. They didn't receive the promise. Abraham was told, dwell in the land, but yet one day, distant in the future, your, your kids are going to come back here and they're going to inherit the land. This is going to happen sometime far off in the future. There was distant promises given to these people. Eve, your, your seed will crush his head, but not in your lifetime, you know, and, and, they, and they just have to wait for it. And that's the idea, is it's not in this life, but in the next. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. 
And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. This is something we have to know with our living hope in Christ. I cannot sit and dwell on the things that I have given up for the sake of Christ. That is, that is a trap. Just don't go there. Just don't go there. Whatever you've sacrificed for Christ, Jesus himself said, anyone who's given up, whether it's lands or family or whatever you've given up, you'll receive that much more in this life and in heaven, eternal life. So I know that it's an easy trade-off. It's like, it's like in the middle of Monopoly, trading all your Monopoly money so that at the end of the game, you'll get real money. And then an hour later, they're still playing, and you're like, I wish I still had my Monopoly money. I mean, come on. <laughs> Just wait for the game to end. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The living hope that we have in Christ is the same thing that caused these people to be willing to make sacrifices and go to their grave still waiting for what God would bring to them in the future. The key phrase here is go to their grave. That is our living hope. It is so important that we get this because right now with so many TV preachers, with so much stuff that's going, and I don't mind, I mean, I like TV preaching. I, I wish there was just more good TV preachers. You know, I mean, we, we should have more TV preaching. Just We just need good, solid teaching there and, and Christ-honoring stuff and gospel representation. But, but with so much of it being based off of, like, faith and hope is all about getting money and health in this life. And that is not what, what our hope is. We've been begotten again to a living hope according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But it's not about being healthy, wealthy, and wise in this life. It is not about that. I mean, read the book of Acts. Read the sufferings of the early church. I mean, almost all of the apostles of Jesus suffered martyrdom for their faith and trust in Christ. Matthew, I mean, and, and now these guys were men of faith, right? Matthew suffered martyrdom by being slain with a sword in Ethiopia. According to church tradition, this is, this is what's been handed down to us. Mark expired at Alexandria after being cruelly dragged through the streets of the city. Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil, but escaped death in a miraculous manner, and afterward he was banished to Patmos, where he wrote Revelation. Peter was crucified at Rome upside down, tradition says, because he, he didn't want to be exalted. He wanted to be crucified in some manner different than Jesus, so people wouldn't look at him and think of him like Jesus, which is the opposite, of course, of what some people have done with Peter. Um, they took his upside-down crucifixion and turned it upside down. <laughs> but he suffered this. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown down from a, the pinnacle of the temple, and then he was beat to death with a club. Bartholomew was flayed alive. His skin was removed from his body. Andrew was bound to a cross uh, when he preached to his persecutors while on the cross until he'd passed away. <laughs> he just kept preaching at him. <laughs> I love that. Oh, Lord, give me, give me, the, give me the consistency and integrity and, and awareness, you know, the alertness of what's really going on in life to be able to preach when the preaching needs to be done, you know, and, and not miss out on it. I mean, you could go down the list. Uh, Thomas was, was killed with a lance. Uh, Jew was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was stoned and the beheaded. Barnabas was stoned. And uh, Paul 
eventually, it seems, was beheaded by Emperor Nero. I mean, after he had been, they'd attempted to kill him, and then he, they thought he was dead. He was just knocked unconscious. Lucky guy. Seemed to wake back up, probably had medical issues that he carried the rest of his life because of the various times he was beaten and, and attacked, and, um, and finally was killed. Um, the only one who died of old age was John the Apostle. Our hope is not in this life. That's the point. Our hope is not in this life. But I notice this, that the longer I live in this life, the more temptation I have to place my hope in this life. The living hope we have is not in this life. What had them so convinced of their living hope? Well, Peter says it right there. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is how God has begotten us to a living hope through the living Savior, Jesus. He's alive, so my hope is alive. Now, one of my favorite things ever to talk about is the resurrection of Jesus. I love it. I mean, my two favorite things, probably in defense of of, um, biblical Christianity, is prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, and the resurrection of Jesus. Because these two things are things that there's so much evidence for, and yet there's no other explanation other than God did it. You know, there's just no rational way to explain it in my mind other than that God actually did this. The resurrection of Jesus, the evidence for it is amazing. I'm not going to get into it all in detail. Maybe I'll do a series on it sometime. It would, it would probably be like a, like a two or three week break from other things that we do. But think about this. 2,000 years after the fact, what blows me away is that the crime scene of the crucifixion of Jesus, God has preserved a lot of evidence up until today, from that crime scene. It is hard to prove things that happened 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine? But yet, there's a lot of evidence. Even secular sources agree, pretty much historians altogether will agree, that certain facts are true about Jesus and his death. One of them is that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, just like the Bible says. This is believed to be true. It's verified through other even extra-biblical sources. Even if you take the Bible just as a historical text and not as a um, religious, you know, authoritative text. Um, Another fact is that the tomb was found empty. The tomb he was buried in, they even believe confidently that it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. There's different reasons historically why they go, okay, this, 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 this. That's probably the way it was. Um, They believe that the tomb was found empty three days later on the third day by the women it would have been embarrassing for women to be the ones reporting if you were coming up with a story later on. You wouldn't invent women as the first witnesses of the resurrection because it would actually, and did, devalue the story at the time. However, to historians today, it values the story even higher because you go, that's not the kind of thing you make up. You just don't make that up. There were independent eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus alive from the dead. Historians agree. That multiple people in various different circumstances claimed to have a physical experience of seeing the risen Christ alive from the dead. They agree on this. They also agree that the apostles endured great violence and even death for one specific claim, that Jesus rose from the dead. And the fifth thing that they agree on is that there were enemies of Jesus both his brothers, and then Paul, of course, is the greatest example of this, who were converted 
because they saw, or at least believed they saw, Christ alive from the dead. And when you put these facts together, the best explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. The only real defense I've personally heard against believing the resurrection is to assume that miracles don't happen. So you have um, certain men, like say Bart Ehrman, who's he's he's a leading um, proponent in the at- attacking the Christian faith, and he'll say he'll say that historians are not allowed to suppose that miracles happened. They have to assume a naturalistic explanation for everything. Therefore, no matter the evidence, Jesus didn't rise. You see how that's circular reasoning? We assume miracles don't happen, so we conclude a miracle didn't happen. But if you're open to even the possibility of a miracle, then the evidence shows that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I'll do a series on this sometime, um, sometime in the future, probably a little ways out, because I did it not very long ago for our youth ministry, and I, I kind of want let it, to let it fade from your mind and then bring it back fresh again, because that, that's, that's what helps, I think. Um, so we have this. We have the evidence of Christ's resurrection from the dead, and we also have, according to Scripture, the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Some people, you didn't need evidence. So when I first got saved, I didn't need evidence and proof. I mean, I just heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit did a work in my life, and I was like, Amen. Now, later when I went hunting for evidence, because I felt like I had to confirm the things that I believed with proof, because there's so many religions out there and so many claims, there was mountains of evidence, and and I was really very encouraged by it. Um, I was also surprised how many Christians didn't know of any of the evidence and didn't want even to know. That was the part that really surprised me, is there were certain believers that, I don't know, maybe they felt like they were devaluing Christianity by having evidence to support it, but I would encourage them to say, we have the only religion with evidence. We should be putting that on display, not hiding it under a rug, <laughs> because we feel like it discounts faith. It doesn't discount faith. Jesus asks us to have faith in response to evidence all the time. He says, believe me because of my works in John chapter 5, because of the proof, he says. So um, faith is not supposed to be blind. It's supposed to be reasonable. It's just supposed to be you know, genuine trust. I'm entrusting myself to this. So, but that's just the, the, um, the fact of the resurrection. The fact of the resurrection itself doesn't get you where you need to be. The reason why Peter says our hope is alive is because the resurrection means something, not just because it happened. What does it mean? Well, let me, uh, let me take you to Matthew chapter 12, to what Jesus, when Jesus talked about his resurrection and what it meant. Matthew 12, verse 39. They were asking for signs after signs after signs. They weren't really listening to the signs that they had already received. And so they were sort of sign seekers, but not responding to them. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 39, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Hmm. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, when we're studying the Old Testament, we like to look for something we call typology or types. And the fancy terms is type and antitype. And so there is the type, which here is Jonah, the symbol or the representative of something. And then the antitype or the thing which corresponds to the type. Sorry, I'm, I'm teaching these 
if you haven't already, maybe you already know this, but if you don't know this, I'm teaching these terms so that if you ever happen to pick up a commentary and they use these terms, you'll be familiar with them. But the anti-type is that which corresponds to the type. Well, the type is always something that represents usually Jesus, and then Jesus becomes the anti-type or the fulfillment of that. I like to think of it more like here's the shadow and here's the thing casting the shadow over here. So Jonah is similar to Jesus in that he was three days and nights in the, in the whale and he was spit up, in a sense, brought back to life. And so Christ says, this will be the sign to you. He's going to fulfill this type. Um, and so you have like, for instance, the tabernacle, all the way it's constructed is um, types of Christ and who he is and sometimes of, of who we are. And then um, it's fulfilled in Jesus, the shadow and the thing that corresponds to it, the thing that casts the shadow. It's as though Jesus is standing in the New Testament, casting his shadow over all the Old Testament. And as you look at the Old Testament in light of Christ, you go, hey, that was your shadow the whole time. It's all about you. And it's, it's one of the funnest things is to read the Old Testament. Like, could you imagine how excited Paul was or, or, or Peter was? Or one of these guys were when they went back to the to scriptures that they'd known their whole lives, but now knowing Christ. And just were like, whoa, hey, whoa, hey, hey, hey. I could just imagine them walking on the street going like, that was what the rock was about that Moses hit. Oh, wow. Like, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Like, this is what it was the whole time. Oh, my goodness. So, wait, Jesus was the seed that Eve was prophesied about? I mean, just could you just imagine the constant lights going on all day long? Uh, just really neat. So, Jesus gives us one of these types here in Matthew 12. Um, this is a sign, according to him. The resurrection, what it means is it's a sign evidencing or proving who Jesus is. That's what the resurrection means. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it confirms everything he said. It's proof. It's evidence. John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, is a similar circumstance. So the Jews answered and said to him, to Jesus, What sign do you show us since you do these things? So prove to us that you have this authority. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And in verse 21, it tells us the temple he was referring to was his body. Three days he'll raise it. So what sign do you do is to show us your authority? And he goes, I'm going to get, excuse me, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. I will raise this body. That'll be the sign. Now that is the point. Another way to ask us what the resurrection means is to say, what would it mean if Jesus hadn't risen? If, if, if we had all of this Christianity stuff, but we didn't have a living Savior, a resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 actually answers this question for us in, in no uncertain terms. And it says, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile or useless. Useless. And you are still in your sins. So two consequences if Jesus has not risen. My faith is pointless, useless. My Christianity is without purpose. And... I'm still in my sin, and I will stand before God and be judged. So this is why he says, if Christ is not risen, then of all men, we're the most pitiful. We are. Now, if we flip that and say, but if Christ is risen, as he has, then my faith is not futile. It is powerful. It is effective. It is useful. It is real. It will come to fruition. And I am no longer in my sin. The resurrection of Jesus becomes 
the, the foundation for Christianity. Christianity is the only religion that I'm aware of that is built on a historical claim. Jesus rose. And it stands or falls with the claim of the resurrection. If there's a skeptic out there who wants to attack Christianity and they're attacking, oh, well, I think the Bible has 10,000 contradictions. And then they go in these endless conversations about these vague passages of, you know, where they try to make everything a contradiction. Everything's a contradiction, right? Um, I would just say you're wasting your time. You should attack the resurrection. And my hope is that in sincerely studying the resurrection, you'll get saved. Like, you know, C.S. Lewis did. And Josh McDowell did. And, uh, I mean, you, you name it. There's, there's a list, as long as my arm, of people who went to attack Christianity and got saved. And you could read their books. Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Um, even uh, recently, there was a, a guy named J. Warner Wallace, who was a cold case detective for over 30 years. Never lost a case. He was that good. He was called by, I think it was NBC or CBS, one of the news agencies. They called him the evidence whisperer. Because, because he was so good at looking at this, this, uh, this circumstantial evidence and then piecing together what really happened. When he decided to approach the Gospels, he was an atheist for years. Um, he approached the Gospels to look at the historical reliability of the Scriptures and then focus for a, a portion on the resurrection of Jesus in particular, and he got saved, gave his life to Christ. And uh, he wrote a book um, called Cold Case Christianity. It's on my, it's on my, re- I got to read this book list. It's, it's a very, very good book, what I've heard of it, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. So I recommend it if you like. If you like detective stories, then you should read this book because he includes a whole lot of cool detective stories and things like that. It's well written. It's, it's, it keeps your attention and all that sort of thing. Um, but so many people have been saved through the evidence, you know. It's wonderful. The, the fact is that Christianity is not just a good moral system. If Jesus is alive, then it's simply true. And he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is the answer. And salvation is in him. And in him I have eternal hope. If he lives, I will live forever in him. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. Hope is alive in Christ. I hope you haven't forgotten this. I hope in your life that you're not getting a little distracted. Because when we live in a world that is constantly throwing at us media that ignores God and forgets Christ, unless they're using his name as a cuss word. And we're living in a world where we're surrounded with people who oftentimes don't want us to speak of Christ or act out our Christianity in their presence. That sometimes we can sort of be like Lot, where it says that righteous man Lot vexed his soul daily by seeing and hearing those wicked things that they were doing. That we can have our souls vexed. We need to remember our living hope. Christ is alive, and therefore we have a living hope. I'll put it this way. If you have any hope in Christ, I mean, you have any hope, even a shred of hope, then you have every hope in Christ because he's risen. It's an all or nothing thing. There's no halfway Jesus either saves you completely or not at all. And um, yeah. So verse 4, back to 1 Peter chapter 1 here, verse 4, it says, uh, Our living hope is to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. When the Bible speaks of my inheritance, I'm born again and I'm adopted into the kingdom. I'm now a child of God and I'm a co-heir with Christ, so I will inherit future Glory, I will inherit the new heaven and new earth, and I will be in a lordship, and so will you, lordship-type position in this new kingdom. Just like Adam and Eve were given 
dominion over the earth and will be given some form of dominion. What will it look like exactly? I don't know. Um, I, I One day we'll do a study on, on heaven. We'll look at some of the details. It's not all lined up for us, all explained entirely, but there's a lot of little details we can look at and piece together that are fun. But our inheritance is about God's coming kingdom and our position in it. And we're given four attributes of our inheritance. The first one is our inheritance is in corruptible. Now that word means undying or immortal. That's what our inheritance is. The first thing on the list is undying, immortal. It is a permanent thing. It is not just a thousand years. Oh, there's a thousand years, but that's just like, that's like the preview. You know, that's like the, 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 the lady standing outside, outside the, uh, the food court at the mall going, ah, you want some orange chicken? You know, this, that's all that is, you know, then we get to inherit the immortal and undying thing that God has for us, and you will not die. Death is a horrible thing, but it's a temporary thing, because the last enemy that will be defeated is death, and um, I'm looking forward to that, because having been to funerals, having spoken at funerals, um, it's hard. It's hard on everybody, because death is separation. It's a separation, but there'll be no more of that. The second attribute of our inheritance is it's undefiled, undefiled. Defiled, this is a beautiful word. It means it's pure from the stain of sin or wickedness. Undefiled. Second Peter, if you want to flip there real quick, Second Peter 3.13 talks about this, about this new heaven and new earth, and it describes it a little bit for us, our inheritance. Nevertheless, Second Peter 3.13, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the description. It's new, new heavens, new earth, in which righteousness dwells. There will be no sin at all in any way in the new heaven, in the new earth. It is undefiled. We look for this according to 2 Peter 3.13. This is like what I'm gazing toward. This is what I'm, my eyes are on. I'm not ultimately saving up for my retirement, which I will have a paltry one at my current rate of savings. I'm saving up for my eternity, which I will have a glorious one at my current rate of savings, <laughs> serving the Lord and just following him. We look for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. It will be righteousness, and I will be righteous. I mean, I know we'll get along because I won't be a sinner anymore. <laughs> Neither will you. Can you imagine the love, the agape, like, oneness that we're going to have in Christ when we're in part of the new heaven and new earth with our new bodies, no longer fighting the flesh, but just with singleness of mind, walking in holiness? Can you imagine the great reunion we're going to have when there's no, there's no longer the flesh to get in the way? to taint things, to harm things, to hurt things. Undefiled. This is the heaven that so many people say they don't want to be part of because it won't involve sin. And I, I would say they're being incredibly honest when they say that. I don't want to go to heaven. I'm going to party in hell. And what they mean by party, of course, is drink and uh, say inappropriate jokes or lust or whatever. I mean, but these, these things aren't partying. That's just sin. I think uh, Christians tend to have more fun than this, their secular counterparts and less hangovers. <laughs> well, the third thing, so it's immortal. It's also undefiled or pure from the stain of sin or wickedness, and we will be pure as well from those things. Oh, I'm so looking forward to that. Um, it also does not fade away. It, that, is, that means it is forever. It's unfading. 
this life is constantly fading. Ecclesiastes talks about this. The Psalms talks about it. We're like, we're like the flower of the field and the grass, and we're just fading away. The sun rises, and poof, it's gone. That is the nature of this life. It's just fading. And if I can say this, the older you get, the more you realize this. It's really hard to grasp this when you're really young. Um, it's difficult to wrap your mind around the idea that everything's going to fade, that everyone you know will slowly die in this, in this life, that your body will begin to degrade and deteriorate and fall apart. And this is going to happen to every single one of us. Um, I think young people look at old people and they think they're some kind of different form of person. And they don't realize, like, you're just the same young person. Your body's just over the hill. You know, you're the same as you always were. Your soul is the same. You just have more experience than other people. But that's why the Bible always elevates elders and older people because of the experience they have and the wisdom they have. They haven't killed themselves, so they probably have something good to, you know, contribute. (laughs) But I think that um, this, this fading aspect of the current world is really disappointing. And that's connected with this word unfading. It means it's not disappointing. It won't, you won't be ashamed of it. But this world is disappointing. It is really disappointing. And um, sometimes we have these hopes, these high hopes for how I'm going to have the perfect marriage. And I'm going to like have the perfect job. And I'm going to you know, do this and do this and do this and do this. I'm going to travel. Da, da, da. But then life as you move forward and on and on with it, it tends to be disappointing, this life. And can I say, how could it have been anything else? You live in a fallen world, in a fallen body, and it's all falling apart. Sorry, that's the bad news. The good news is that our inheritance, which we look for and we point our eyes at, is unfading. The glory and joy of heaven on day one is the glory and joy of heaven on day six trillion and counting. I don't know how long it's going to take for the initial honeymoon phase, you know what I mean? (laughs) To just, because it's just so perfect. So if I can say this, heaven is so glorious. This world is fading, but sometimes this world is what we see in color and we tend to see heaven in a faded way in our own hearts. I need to be encouraged and reminded that my hope is alive and that my my home is heaven and that my eternity is there. And no matter how um, much I'm desiring things in this world, I mean, like, are you thinking like, oh, Lord, don't come now because I'm not married yet. And I'm like, how? I'm not saying that you think you're thinking too highly of marriage. I think you're just thinking too lowly of heaven. (laughs) Don't come yet, Lord. I, I want to travel. I want to see New Zealand. I want to go to the little hobbit town there. (laughs) And I'm just like, hobbit town? Heaven. I'm thinking it's up here a little bit higher. You know, we we just need to get a clear vision of heaven so that we will place our hope in the right right location, you know, and that it's not all about this life. The home you live in now might be the last home you live in on earth, but it is not your last home. It's just we're pilgrims passing through. That's the point. And the last thing it says here is that it is reserved for you. Now, this is, this is where all of a sudden the letter becomes personal. You. Peter's like, you. It is preserved. It is, it is undying, right? It's immortal. It is undefiled. It's unfading. And it is reserved for you. 
Now, when, when I go out with my wife for Valentine's Day, we, well, unless we're at camp, <laughs> which I would not recommend is not really very good for your marriage, but, but if we go out and we actually get to go out for Valentine's Day and we're not at summer or winter camp with the high school students, then um, we have reservations. Like, we don't just show up Valentine's Day without reservations somewhere. Like, you're in trouble. Unless you're going in and out, you're in trouble, right? Which would be great, in my opinion, but, like, you know, Valentine's Day is for her, in my opinion, so that's, am I wrong? <laughs> so, just guys, get over it, it's for her. So, we go out somewhere nice, and I make reservations, and I'm not worried when I walk in, and the restaurant's totally packed, because I'm like, yo, Mike, reservation for two, you know, they have, it's reserved for us, under our name, and in the same sense, we need to think of heaven not as a, a maybe will I get there, maybe will I make it. In Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, I have a living hope, not only for how glorious heaven is, but for how completely guaranteed I am to have a spot. That's really important. That I will be there. I will be there. You will be there. If you are in Christ, if you have Jesus, case closed. You'll be there. It's reserved for you. You have a reservation. In a sense, there is a a good parallel here, I think, which is the land of Israel. The land of Israel, actually, they were promised larger borders than the current borders they, they possess at the moment. Now, are they going to at some point possess all of the land that God has given them? I mean, is there any doubt in your mind that God will eventually give them all of this land? That you'll be there in the millennial kingdom and you will see they are in the land. Absolutely. Why? Because it's reserved for them. God's like, yeah, it's for you. You'll get it. Now, when you get it depends on when you come to Christ, but you'll get it. In the same sense, I will get it. In Christ, I will get it. Why? Not by any work I have done. Oh, no, no. According to his abundant mercy, he has begotten me to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing I've done. It's all by him. It's born again is completely a job of God. I just respond to his grace, but that's about it. So it's reserved for you. So don't forget... In a sense, I would say don't lose your accent. Maybe that's the point here as a pilgrim. I don't know if you've ever traveled. Some of you maybe have had an accent in the past, and maybe you've lost it. I mean, we're from California, so we think we have no accents. But what's, the funny thing actually is I go to other places, and they agree with me. I have no accent. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I just feel so un, unvalued now. But, but sometimes people will travel from a foreign land into... What, what to us is our natural land, but to them is a foreign land. And it's interesting to listen to see if they maintain their accent or not. That's interesting. I, I mean, Ray Comfort's ministry, I think, has gone further because he's maintained his accent. People, we just, Americans just like listening to people with accents, right? Most accents, not all, I will admit, not all of them, because we have to understand you. But, but we like accents. Like, if you're British, we just figure you're smart, and you must know what you're talking about. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm convinced you are. Maybe because when I listen to the Bible on tape, it's a Brit. I don't know. Maybe that's the reason why. I'm like the voice of authority, maybe. I don't know. Something royal about it. But as Christians, I sort of should let the accent of the fact that I'm a believer in Christ and that my destination is heaven, that should sort of stick with me in this life as I live. And I don't want to lose that accent and stop speaking and thinking and acting as though I have a final home that is not here. That's the point. Keep your accent. Keep the fact that it's all going to burn. It is. And we will stand one day before Jesus Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
We will be before him in glory, praising him in reunion with all of our brothers and sisters we may have lost over the years and those we've never met. We'll be in glory, immortal and eternal and unfading, reserved for you. So as pilgrims, I need to remember that it is a constant issue of this world versus the next. And in, the, in that issue, every one of these four attributes is reversed. This world, unlike my future, is corrupted. There is death in this world, and it is tragic. This world is defiled. There is sin. It, it creeps into everything, and it impacts everything, and it complicates and harms everything. It is not reserved for me. This fading world is not reserved for me. And that's good news. Remember that. This is, this is ultimately, I, I have a car, but it's temporary. I even have hair. And sadly, it's temporary. <laughs> Hopefully it lasts as long as the rest of my body. <laughs> but it is temporary. It is all, it is all fading and temporary. And so I, I think it would be cool to read again what we, what we read here in First Peter. Just... Think of how it contrasts with the world. So it says, who, uh, 1 Peter 1.3, um, the second part of the verse, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. For you. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is a, res- there is a reservation, or that my, my, uh, my inheritance is kept for me, reserved for me, but according to verse 5, I am also being kept. It's not only being kept, but I am being kept by the power of God, through faith, for that salvation ready to be revealed. In Christianity, we use the word salvation in the Bible in multiple senses. I'm saved by grace through faith alone. That's like a past tense, my position in heaven. But my condition is not the same as my position in heaven. And one day, the two will be matched. My position and my condition will be linked up, my new body and my eternal home with him. And that is when I'm going to be saved, future sense. So I'm saved, being saved, will be saved. It's not just mixing terms, but rather it's all different aspects of the same thing. But I'm kept for the salvation. This is actually a different word, though, this word kept. This is like a military term. And so it's like to set a guard over something. And so guard is, uh, God has guarded over us. He, he is keeping us militarily from attack. And you are under attack. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but I am definitely under attack. My spirit is being attacked. My life is being attacked. My faith is being attacked. I mean, you are in a spiritual battle every day. And you might think you don't matter and that, oh, why would Satan bother with me? And I'd be like, well, you're an eternal child of God. Of course he's going to bother with you. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul talks about the warfare they were experiencing, but check out his living hope in the middle of the attack. He says, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Let me read that again. And we're contrasting what they are and what they're not. We're hard-pressed on every side. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. Hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. You notice how he's not complaining. He's actually, he's like, eh. You got any more? I mean, that's kind of the attitude he's got, right? We're hard-pressed, but not crushed. We're perplexed 
we're confused, perplexed. I'm confused. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure what God is doing in my circumstance right now. I can't explain it. I can't really predict it. What I thought God was doing maybe is not happening, and I'm just confused. I'm confused. I'm perplexed, but not in despair. That is so huge. Lord, I'm confused, but I'm not doubting you. I just have no idea what's happening right now. And can I say, that's okay. If Paul the Apostle could feel that way, then I think it's all right for me to feel that way too. (laughs) Verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken. They were persecuted that, I mean, God's guarding me, then why am I suffering? Well, that's just part of God's plan in your life, but don't worry, he's still guarding you. Even though you're persecuted, even though you're attacked, even though bad things might be happening, God is still in control and he's still holding back things from what else they might be. Just like with Job, Satan could only do to Job what God gave him permission to do. So they're persecuted but not forsaken. The suffering I'm experiencing doesn't mean God has forsaken me and turned his back upon me and given up on me. Struck down. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. I just think, uh, think of the original Captain America movie with, um, uh, what's his name? I I don't know. Actually, I don't know the actor's name, but anyway. Huh? What's his name? Yeah, Captain. Chris Evans. All right. And and they did this cool CGI thing where they made him look like a 98-pound weakling, you know? And then he's like fighting this guy, but he just won't quit. And he's just getting beat up and knocked down and kicked around in an alleyway. And then he's like, you know, are you giving up or something along those lines? You know, he just, he just will not quit. What did he say? Is that all you got? <laughs> it's like, you're like, dude, you're, you're about to crack in half, you know? Is that all you got? And this is kind of Paul's attitude here. It's like we're perplexed. It's not that he wants more bad stuff to happen. It's just that no matter what happens, it's not going to shake his trust in God. That's the thing. I am kept. I am under guard. And how can I say all this in the middle of hardship in, your, in my life currently? Well, Romans 8. Please turn there. Romans 8, 31. I'll give you a moment to get there. It's right before Genesis. I'm just kidding. Don't go there. <laughs> now, Romans 8, 31. And it says here, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If if God sent his son to die on the cross, he gave that for us. Isn't he also going to give you the rest of the deal too? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He's constantly living to bring us to God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? This is a really good question. When you're experiencing tribulation, which is a generic term for bad experiences in life, do you think that that has separated you from the love that God has for you in Christ? Silly. (laughs) Of course not. Or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, peril of the sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So he points and says, hey guys, remember, this world is not ours. So in this world we suffer just like Christ did but in the next we reign just like Christ will. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Is that all you got? 
through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, that kind of fits a lot of stuff, doesn't it? The category of life. (laughs) Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christians should be humble, but they should be ridiculously confident because of the love of Christ, because of the love of God that is guaranteed ours in Christ, because of the confidence of our salvation, because we do boast in him. We boast in Christ. I make my boast in him. I'm confident in him. I trust him, period, end of story. But am I good enough, Lord? Am I good enough to stay close? Am I good enough to be yours? Hey, man, it's God who keeps me. It's not me who keeps me. It's, if, if, if it's him, it's him. He's doing the work from start to finish. He's doing it. Now, I, I participate in, in trusting him. I repent and believe, but that's not a work. The Bible doesn't describe that as a, a work that I do. It's something that I, a position I take in response to things that he's done. And so, so verse six, back to first Peter chapter one here, verse six says, <clears throat> in this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. In this, you greatly rejoice. You have great rejoicing, big rejoicing, huge rejoicing. And I hope that your heart is is encouraged and lifted up even as we're discussing this. Not because of some powerful teaching that I can offer. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. We're just reading the scriptures. Are you not encouraged? Are you not edified? Are you not built up in your courage and your trust in Christ and the eternity that he has for us? In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, check this out, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Now here is where I think the Christian life is more complicated than some people give it credit for. He is talking about, not about the the old contrast of, why are you grieving, you should be rejoicing. Rather, he is saying, you're grieving and you're rejoicing. The two coexist at the same time, often in a Christian's life. I have grief, I have hardship, I have difficulty, but I have greater rejoicing than the grief that I have. And I think that Christians need not remove all grief from their hearts. We simply need to fall back upon the joy that we have in Christ. This is actually, let me read it to you again. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Christians are not supposed to put on a mask of joy but instead an ocean of calm beneath the storms of life. That's what our Christian joy is like. It's more like the calm ocean underneath the vicious storm that's going on. We've got El Nino Gordo or whatever they're calling it nowadays going on off the coast, right? Coming our way. What do they call it? The Godzilla of El Nino? I don't know how many languages we have to use to describe something, but... um, but we've got this thing coming our way. But you know, if you could go into the middle of the worst part of this thing, and then just go underwater a little ways, you'd probably find that everything's just peachy keen. Fish are swimming around, just keep swimming. You know, they're just doing their thing, you know, just going about life like there's nothing going on at all. And I think that this is like a good illustration for Christian joy. Our Christian joy is sort of the, the ocean of calm beneath the storm of life. Is there a storm? Oh, yeah. Is it affecting me? Oh, yeah. But does it remove my joy? No. No, I may be hard-pressed, but I'm not crushed. I may be perplexed, but I'm not in despair. I may be persecuted, but I'm not abandoned. 
I may be struck down, but I'm not destroyed. I have joy. In this you greatly rejoice, even though you're grieved. So when you, when you, when you get this, and someone says, how are you doing? And you respond with, man, things are really hard right now. You know, but I'm trusting in the Lord, and I'm waiting on God to renew my strength. And then you don't feel unspiritual because you're just saying, yeah, I'm struggling right now, but I'm waiting on God. I still have joy, but yeah, it's a tough season. Can I say, that's okay. <laughs> Not only is it okay, it's inescapable. <laughs> it's going to happen to you, it's going to happen to me, and we don't have to pretend that it's not. Um, rather, I think greater strength is shown when we're just real about it, but yet we can, we can point towards the trust that we have in spite of this. So here's the storm, and here's my trust. Read the Psalms, that's how David writes them. Lord, here's my storm. And then he ends with, yet I will praise the Lord. Like he's, like he's just stomping his foot down, like defiantly. Yet I will praise the Lord. You know, I mean, like it's, he's defiant against the storm that's coming upon him. He's in despair, and then he's praising God in, you know, at the, by the end of the psalm. And this is, I think, a better illustration of how a believer deals with grief than to just ignore it and rejoice anyways. Um, <clears throat> And then uh, verse 7, we'll just read a little bit more. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our rejoicing is greater than our grief, and this is the main point, but it's also encouraging to know that even in the trial, something good is happening in me. The trials, like the fire that, br- that boils the gold, brings up the impurities to the surface of the gold so they can be swept away so that it can be refined and be more pure. That's the idea. And it may not make sense, the trial you're in. It may be confusing. But the Bible's so consistent here is that every trial I experience is bringing some sort of maturity that I get to carry with me into eternity. It's a temporary pain for a permanent blessing. And that's, that's great. And all I can do is I can say, Lord, I would never have heaped this trial upon myself but I can trust you. I can trust you. You're putting me through the fire not to burn me, to refine me. So I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. I trust, I trust the one who, uh, who is in control of my life, who's keeping me. Gold is refined in the fire, and you are refined in trials. And if I can say it this way, some lessons you just don't learn when the sun is shining and things are going well. Some lessons you just don't learn that way. And maybe the lesson's not even for you to do something super special in this life. Maybe it's just for you to carry this, this lesson into eternity with you. I don't know. Whatever. I don't know what God's plan is. But I don't have to know. I don't have to figure out his plan to trust him in the middle of the, the thing. I used to feel like I had to. And every time I was like, oh, I think I got it. I think, okay, God's doing this to do this to do this. And I was like, fine, okay, I get it. Now I feel good. And then like, I'd find out I was totally wrong. Nothing didn't happen at all. And then I'm going, but I thought that the Lord was, maybe I should just realize that God's ways are higher than my ways. I'm not going to figure it out, you know, and trust him. And just, and I was trying to find a way around faith is ultimately what it was. So what did I learn through that, through that trial? To just give up and trust God. That's the thing. And there's always lessons in our trials. Rejoice when you fall into trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Just let it happen. Let it happen. So our eyes on eternity, with our hearts and our hope firmly in heaven, 
in beneath the storms of this life, we have an ocean of joy and hope and peace and comfort, knowing that even the storm is producing some wonderful effect for eternity. And by the way, you don't have to figure out what that is. So let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for this word as we're reading through First Peter of uh, our hope in the resurrection of Christ, this living hope that we have. May you help us to set our eyes on eternity. This incorruptible, unfading, immortal eternity. And Lord, to take them off of this world. May the world fade in our eyes and may we see eternity more clearly. May the storm grow smaller, Lord, as we sort of retreat for a moment into the depths of the joy, of the peace, of the hope, of our eternal and constant experience in the presence of God forever. We pray, Lord, that you'd encourage us and you'd help us to, um, even if we're perplexed in this life, to not be in despair. Even if we're struck down, to not be destroyed, Lord. Not, Not to be arrogant about ourselves, but to be super confident in you, Lord, and to be boasting in Christ no matter what. Please, Lord, we pray this. Encourage our hearts and help us to um, set our eyes on you, to run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for thinking biblically with me today. I am Mike Winger, and I just want to mention really briefly that I have uh, compiled hundreds of videos and teaching content online on BibleThinker.org. And you can go on to BibleThinker.org and actually search based on topics or series or keywords or passages in the Bible to try to find out if I have teaching related to the thing that you're interested in. So feel free to check that out. Also, next time on Bible Thinker, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through 1 Peter and get into some important keys to understanding prophecy in the Bible. This is stuff that, in my opinion, really makes the Bible make a lot more sense when you understand this stuff. And also, we're going to give a response to the claim that Christians have blind faith. And we'll look into what I think is the best evidence for showing that the Bible is God's holy word. So consider checking out BibleThinker.org until then. And don't forget to check the context. 